the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is five minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock on today, the 29th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. A whole lot of shaking going on at exactly this time. In fact, just about 5.05 on October the 17th of 1989. And uh, we're going to do a little shaking ourselves here over the course of today's program, though hopefully none of it will have uh, earth-shaking consequences to it, but perhaps life-shaking, or maybe more accurately put, life-impacting, life-changing consequences. You know, as Americans, we have long boasted about and been proud about a history of valuing choice. The very foundation of our nation centers around this concept. We see it embedded not only in the Declaration of Independence, but in the United States Constitution, a constitution that believes that certain gifts, certain rights are granted by very God himself. The Constitution doesn't grant rights. It protects those rights. And some of the most important rights of choice embedded in the United States Constitution, protected by our Bill of Rights, includes things like the, the, the free opportunity to choose the religion that you practice, the people that you associate with, the kind of beliefs that you have, the kind of words that you say, the thoughts that you have. Certainly, the freedom to choose is critically important historically for every American. That said, We also need to recognize that with choice comes responsibility. And sometimes choices, the decisions that we make, the actions that we engage in, the choices that we make will have consequences. Sometimes they are unintended consequences. Sometimes they are consequences that we can see coming down the road at us, but we feel as if as we make one choice, the consequences that come with it what the old saying, we'll have to let the cards fall where they fall, because oftentimes with those choices and the unintended consequences come barriers. Today, we talk about this issue of choice, and I want to bring it closer to home. And that is choice that it impacts not just the decisions that we make in our own lives, but the decisions we make, the choices that we make that impact the lives of others, both figuratively and very literally. Joining me today in studio is a special guest that talks about what choice is all about and shares many of her own life lessons to help all of us, I think, ultimately make better decisions, to make better choices that ultimately honor God. She's the author of a new book called Choose Zoe, a story of unplanned parenthood and the case for life. And Laurie Lynn Hughes, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. Let's talk about choice. My goodness, Um, your life, as all of our lives are, filled with many choices. Sometimes there are adult choices that are saved or better kept for adulthood. 
Sometimes there are adult choices that children are oftentimes forced to make. And in your case, you've had to face both adult choices in adulthood and adult choices even in childhood. Let's talk a bit about your own experience. And and as we dive into that, let me start with a question. As I've read your story and heard the challenges that you have faced, the challenges that your family, that your children have faced, I wonder why go public with all of this? Some might say, and it certainly seems to be a frequent mentality within the church, and that is, well, there are some things better left unsaid, that they tend to bring up pain, guilt, shame, um, feelings that never have been really addressed. And so as a result, because of the kind of pain sometimes that those uh, those decisions we've made, those choices that we have made uh, result in, better to just sort of leave it all quiet. Why did you decide to go public with your story? Well, I believe pain also brings out of us our greatest purpose. And I was 15 years old. I had a great family, but I knew what it was like to have a poor relationship with a boy and bring life into the world. Um, And I felt like at the pregnancy center where I volunteer, and we do offer plenty of choices, uh, parenting, foster care, adoption, um, I felt like after the third 12-year-old in California in one month got pregnant in my town, that I needed to do something that mattered, something that helped people navigate through their choices because people deserve to have education. They deserve to have all the information that they can get when they're faced with really pertinent uh, decisions. So this is not just simply the telling of a story, but also in many respects, making a statement and setting an example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our young people in California, for one, we're here in California, and they need us. And in our schools, they're not protected. There's a state law that requires um, our education system to have it in the student parent handbook that says that our children can leave for any medical reason. And so that means that our 12-year-olds can go into the schools and the schools have to allow them to leave to have an abortion, for instance. I always find it ironic that a nurse cannot administer an aspirin in the state of California by law without parental approval. And yet the same child can go to the nurse and say, I think I'm pregnant. Can you please arrange for me to have an abortion? Can you get me to the local Planned Parenthood? And not only is the school nurse legally obligated to do so, but also equally obligated not to say anything. Right. And I asked 10 parents in the last two days, did they know what they were signing in the parent-student handbook? And they said no. Yeah, to a person I'm sure they all said had no clue. No clue. Walk us back. You were raised in a fairly large, eight siblings, 10 total, Roman Catholic family. And it sounds like your your parents were, were pretty engaged. Now, your dad traveled. Yes. Mom went through a season of illness where, in a sense, she wasn't always physically capable to be there for you. I'm doing my air quotes here. You can't see them <laughs> on the radio. But but aside from some of those challenges, with many degrees today, with working families, they're, they're not uncommon at all. Um, you were raised in a pretty normal, pretty stable, loving family, loving household. Absolutely. Salt of the earth. So we were raised Catholic. We went to Catholic schools. 
more importantly, in our home, my parents showed us good, loving qualities apart from religion. They showed us what it meant to have a relationship with people in town, with each other. And they were just wonderful examples of that. Um, Right after Roe v. Wade in about 1973, my mom was one of the first to march with her friends, and they did keep abortion out of Montana, um, but then the federal came in and made it, you know, a federal law across the states. And my dad would write letters to the editor when they would say how much it costs to raise two kids, and, you know, he said, I never made that kind of money, and I raised all these kids. And so in my house, it was, it was celebrated. You know, if someone became pregnant, it was a celebrated thing. Um, marriage was celebrated Life was valued. Foremost. Life was seen as important as a gift from God. Absolutely. And and raised in a family where you went to Catholic schools, you went to mass on Sundays. Uh, your family was engaged in the community. Um, again, pretty pretty normal, ideal in in a sense. Um, uh, childhood, a modeling a childhood that would be, I think, in, in many respects, from certainly a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective, what we would want for all of our kids. You had, however, an experience early on that perhaps began to to influence and taint some of your choices. That experience was not a voluntary one at the age of 10. And I I think it's important, as, as difficult as this may be, I'm going to ask you to share a little bit of that because... In a day and an age when we've just gone through debates on Capitol Hill centered very much around this topic of respect for women and the kind of abuses that can take place in a uh, testosterone-driven, masculine-dominated society, tell us what happened to you, Lori, at the age of 10. Well, we were just doing some regular old playing, you know, at an event that we were at, and some boys decided to... uh, get me under a table and see how much shame they could And these were classmates of yours. Enlist. These were boys that you knew, and you had gone to, as I recall, a, a community event, gone to a pancake breakfast or something, and off in a separate room, kids being kids. Right. But it, it, it turned to not so kids being kids pretty quickly. Right. And some of the boys were 12 and 13, and I just went to an event where it said that the first time that people um, molest um children is at 13 to 14 years old and they may not get caught until the average age age of about 30 so boys are molested also girls are molested this book was about pregnancy I wasn't even going to put that story in here but the more that um, the nudging started happening because my publisher um, Red Arrow they're saying well why are you raised in this perfect family why would you get pregnant there has to be some background And it didn't dawn on me, but then when I started looking at the statistics, statistics of um, pregnancy and abortion are very high if a a young lady's been molested. Ten years old, even the emotional and mental capacity, the intellectual capacity to be able to process what has happened and to delineate between feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment and wanting to run and hide or bury yourself and and recognizing that this is something that's been done to you not by you that you have no culpability here that you are a victim here 
Uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, for a 10-year-old to be able to process all of that. So then on the backside, how did, how did you deal with it? Did you go to mom and dad and say, let me tell you what happened? No. The first time I ever wrote about it was in the book. I've only spoke about it recently. Wow. You're one of the first one-on-one individuals who has ever asked me this question. And so I think what's important to know is people do hide their shame. And I had an experience with the Holy Spirit just in about the last year where um, I I was looking at um, Jehoshaphat and how he, he was dropped, like something happened to him. And sometimes we're dropped. And in that moment, I could see where God offers us the robe of righteousness. And I felt like he took that tablecloth off that table where the abuse had happened under that table, wrapped it around my arms, and said, (laughs) you're righteous. Mm -hmm. You're my girl. And so, you know, I think Satan likes to keep us in the dark, covered in our shame, And as soon as that is brought to the light, then you're free. And so all those years went by until I was ready to help other people. But in writing this book, it was therapy for me. And so I'm I'm really praying. I've had so many people contact me from this book with so many things that they've been through and telling me. The very first person who contacted me on Facebook, she said, I was molested young and abused. And she said, I had so many questions. And in reading this book, I had all my questions answered, and I'm uh, healed. And like I told you, I was leaving that out of the book. And so the very first person that read it and talked to me about it, that's what hit her. Looking back and in making the decision to go public with this, do you see this? event in life, a tragic one, a painful one, as pivotal to some of the choices that you made subsequent to the event? Absolutely, because why else would I just say yes to a boy at 15? You know, I had my first boyfriend when I was 12, and we never had any sex or anything. We just kissed. Um, I had a wonderful family, but we did not talk about sex. I knew you don't have sex until marriage, but I didn't know you had any feelings. So I do have a really good section in the book on how parents and children can talk back and forth and have an open communication. But I think that because, you know, like sometimes people say, well, I'm already like nothing or I'm already, you know, yeah. So so why not? That wasn't the case for me. Um, I liked a boy. I didn't know we'd have any feelings whatsoever. I didn't understand that we're made in God's image. We're also physical, sexual beings that are created for love and intimacy. And so when that boy started paying attention to me, you know, at 15, we had sex and I got pregnant. So I think that um, a molestation definitely opens the door. Because it lower your... Your your I don't want to say standards, but does, does it lower your tolerance level? Does it lower what you're willing to accept or 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 see as yeah I can I can go there I can do that? I think so because there's been a pattern in my life when I look back how you know I would allow people to treat me, and before that I never did. So it increases your vulnerability as a result. Absolutely. 
If you've just joined us, we're in studio today with Lori Lynn Hughes. She's the author of a new book called Choose Zoe. And we'll get to the title of the book as our dialogue develops here. Meanwhile, we're going to take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation. Right now here at 520, let's pause and get you an update on traffic. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center where we say good afternoon to Michael Bennett. Hey, Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation. Lori Lynn Hughes with us today in studio. The new book, Choose Zoe, a story of unplanned parenthood and the case for life. So we were speaking just for the break about this decision to go public with what happened to you at the age of 10, the impact that it had on your choices subsequent to that experience, and the age of 15, 16, um, you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy. You're raised Roman Catholic. You've been exposed to the message of the value of life. And now you have this quandary. What did you do when you first discovered that there was a life growing inside of you? What was your initial reaction? I was just really excited. Um, I always loved the story of the Virgin Mary, and it said she pondered these things in her heart. And I think as women, when we do that, we can get really excited. When we shut out the outside noise, like, oh, no, I'm not married. Oh, no, I'm 15. Oh, no, I'm in a parochial school. You know, all those oh, no's. When we get quiet, I think we can have some time to make a good decision. And I had a lot of peace, and I was super excited. My baby was already kicking around by the time anybody knew because I didn't really say anything. You know, and you're talking about choices, and I just thought of this. Like, by chance, I was in one of the most wonderful families you could be in. But then my choice to have sex outside of marriage, it had consequences. And it took great courage to write that book. You have seven other siblings. You have parents who are plugged in. They're aware. How long were you able to keep it a secret? (laughs) Well, I was at the grocery store with my sister, and um, I passed out at the grocery store. So she picked me up off the floor and said, well, what I heard must be true. So my brother-in-law, he suspected because he saw my breast growing. (laughs) He's like, you guys are all flat-chested. So he said, "I I think she's pregnant. And my sister was like, no, she can't be. So she peeled me off the grocery store floor. And when she took me home, she said, can anybody else be pregnant? Because she was pregnant, my other sister was pregnant, and my sister-in-law was pregnant. Oh, my. Mom and dad are suddenly going to have a brood of grandkids, want them or not. Yeah, there was four born that August and September. Wow. And so, you know, she asked me, was I pregnant? And I said, well, I don't know. She goes, well, when was your last period? And I said, "Uh, five and a half months ago. Mm -hmm. And she said, you little Mm -hmm. four-letter word. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> what was the reaction from mom and dad? Uh, it was really beautiful. My parents are so good. They're like salt to the earth. And my mom told me that, my sister told my mom, and then my mom told me that when she, she picked dad up from the airport that night from a business trip, that she was going to tell him on the way home. And so I did what any responsible 15-year-old would do, and I hid. <laughs> yes. I called my boyfriend. <laughs> we We're per- pulled here. the Volkswagen you know, behind the um, church, and we sat in the parking lot. And I figured I'd come home around 3.30 in the morning because my dad was usually up about 4.35 reading the Bible. So I wanted to get in between time mom went to bed and <laughs> dad woke up. 
And when I walked in the door, I just opened the door, and there sat my dad across the room, reading his Bible, Coke bottle glasses, in his little green velvet chair, and I just burst into tears. And my dad walked over to me, and he hugged me, and he told me that he loved me, and that him and mom were too old to raise another baby, because I was the youngest, and that all he asked would be that I would pray every day what was best for my baby, whether I would parent her with their, you know, assistance um, or place her in loving arms of adoptive parents. And then he said, so now I need you to go get some sleep because you got school in a couple hours. Now, this is 1977. So we are four years into Roe v. Wade. The, 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 the push, the feminist push at that point for women to be free, to not be shackled by having an unplanned pregnancy. It's going to short-circuit your life, your career, all of this. So there's an awful lot of that. And even though you're in the middle of the country, you're in the flyover territory where perhaps the, the societal pressure would not be the same as it might be in a California or a New York, it's still there. The messages are still there. Had the potentiality of abortion even crossed your mind? No, never, never. Um, they were already, my parents were already talking to us about abortion because of Roe v. Wade. So I already knew. I could never look at those pictures. I don't like seeing, um, you know, an aborted fetus baby. I don't. So the choice that you speak of was not a choice whether to keep or abort, but rather a choice as to ultimately what would be best for your daughter right. to either keep her and raise her or at birth put her up for adoption. Yes. Ultimately, what did you choose? I gave birth to my baby girl, <laughs> and it was one of the greatest things um, in my life. I was 16 when she was born, and I couldn't have been happier. Um, you know, it was like she was the reward of conflict, so to speak. And, you know, I didn't get to do things after school. My parents were pretty good about letting me go for a little bit. Um, but I had to change. You know, I couldn't cheer anymore and I couldn't be on the student council anymore and um, you know there was some things that I had to quit that year um, and raise my baby. There was a moment of fear in this process prior to delivering your daughter Erica. Um, tell us what happened. Um, you, you had some complications. And the doctors had made a recommendation to you. Well, actually, with Erica, um, it was right after she was born. Ah. Right after I had her, um, her fontanelle was fused. And so the doctor there in Bozeman, Montana, came and pulled my sheets down, and he drew a, a head on the sheets with four, you know, two lines through it and said, explained how her head was fused together, and that they were going to have to go take her and separate the bones and... You know, and he looks at my mom, and he's like, why did you let her have this child? Why didn't you have her abort? And he started talking to her about, like, 2.5 kids or something. And, and then he leaves the room, starts talking about overpopulation. Wow. And so I told my mom, I'm like, go after him. Like, fire him. Like, he yeah, can't touch my baby. Not really what you want to hear from <laughs> a physician when you've just delivered no. your child. And he's he's questioning why... You didn't do something earlier. Now, we're in a day and an age that is well prior to the development of sonograms. So some of the information is a little bit less. 
And were there no degrees in any kind of a complication of the pregnancy that would have said, hey, uh-oh, there might oh, be a no. problem here? Nothing. No, I so had a wonderful pregnancy. Normal I, all the way through. I delivered in two and a half hours. I mean. Oh, there's some women going, wow. I know. I'm envious. <laughs> My sister was pregnant at the time, and I think she's still a little upset with me because her labor was so long. Yeah, I think there are stories from my mother that, that, <laughs> that she arrived somewhere around 7 o'clock in the evening, fully expected uh, a, a, a bouncing baby of some sort in any moment. And um, late as usual, about 14 hours later, I finally showed up on the scene. <laughs> so the pregnancy was normal. However, there's this complication. The doctor is now... Now suddenly belittling you. Yeah. I left the hospital with my daughter, and they had me come back the next day because they said, you have to sign the birth certificate. There's no record of your daughter. You have to sign this. But I was really nervous that they were going to hurt her. And so I took her home. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. You must have been terrified, though. I mean, even with the support that you had from your parents, here you are, barely 16 years old. You're now a mother, and there's this tremendous responsibility now that suddenly it's not just your life and your choices, but how your choices will impact your daughter. Yes. Yeah, and the choices do. And I continued to go with the same boy. So I went with her, you know, her dad, and um, probably one of the hardest things that I went through, she was actually the, the creme of the crop. Like, she was... The cherry on the top. She was the sugar on the top. She was it all because what lied beneath was a broken girl. So I was with him soon after and pregnant again. So in my family, we're Irish Catholic, and there's something called Irish twins, and that's where you have babies within the same year. And that pregnancy broke my heart. So I miscarried a little boy um, over 20 weeks pregnant. I saw him in uh, 25 states. It's legal to abort up to that time. And you cannot tell me that that baby is anything less than a little tiny baby human being. That was really, really hard for me. I was introduced to postpartum loss that day. Mm -hmm. And so in one year, I have the happiest, most joyous birth that you could ever dream of. And then that I miscarry a little boy. How did you process that at the time? Again, for a young girl, and there's got to be emotions flying high at every level um, in, 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 the, in the moment of the difficulty that led to the, the miscarriage. Your mother came in. Yeah. Um, I was sitting there, and she said, what's the matter? Like, why are you crying? And... I just turned my face, you know, crying in shame. And she said, what's the matter? Are, are you pregnant again? And I said, not anymore. And she said, oh, my God, you know, get up. And I still had the placenta inside. I had to give birth to that. And um, I saw his little hands spring out, um, things, you know, that you'll never forget. And I'm, I'm like in a fog, in a, in a dream, like this can't be happening. And so... She sent me to bed, and she took my little boy. Um, and I, I went into my room that day, and I had a little plaque on the wall that said Lori's room, and it had a little pink princess on it. And I remember pushing the door open and looking at that princess and then crawling in my bed, putting the covers over, and just 
covering myself with grief like I am not close to a princess right now. What was your relationship with God at this time? Well, I, um, I went to Mass five days a week before going to Catholic school. Um, I learned there um, good deeds, uh, a lot of Bible stories. Um, the nuns and the priests treated us really well. I mean, it went to a really good school. Um, kids were all pretty nice. Um, I was starting to read the Psalms on my own. I still love creative writing and poetry. So I was reading the Psalms, and I feel like I was really starting to get in touch Mm -hmm. with my spirituality, with making it a real relationship between me and God. And the, the pregnancy, the bad relationship, the miscarriage, all of those things, they did draw me to the Lord. But I also separated myself because it's just so much. It's overwhelming. It's so much for a young person to even try to, you know, figure it out in your mind. And I didn't have the greatest coping skills. For me, you've already heard, I was under the table with the the tablecloth, you know, and then I'm in my room after the miscarriage with the blanket over my head. And so, you know... Was there, a sense, was there a sense of any guilt? Was there any sense of God must have punished me for some reason here, taking I, the child from me? Oh, I felt so guilty mm. because I had found my boyfriend with a girl at the park rolling around. He was supposed to drive me home from school, and I was looking for him, and I found him with another girl. And he denied me, and you know, it wasn't the first time he said, I don't want you or your baby. Um, but I had one baby at home, and so we got in a fight. Um, I was so mad, and I fought him and fought him and fought him. He was not fighting me. He was not an abusive person, and he was just trying to get me off him, basically. And in that fight, it resulted in the death of my unborn son. And so that was the biggest guilt. Um, I have some resources in the book for people who have uh, miscarried because there there's so many situations you know, like either why am I infertile or why can't I have a baby or why did I get raped and, you know, conceive and why have I lost this baby? Um, and I think that there's some really good resources and some really good books. And so I went to a um, miscarriage class that really helped me at the pregnancy center. Because um, at the pregnancy center, we also have post-abortive peer counseling. Uh, so that really helped me. Um, to go through that. There's so many layers of complexity to all of this emotionally and, and, and how you process the information, the events, the impact, the choices, the results of those choices uh, for an individual. That, that I think it's no wonder that oftentimes we see women and men that will repeat bad decisions over and over, even though they say at the time, wow, I don't know how I got here, but I got to make sure I never get here again. And then suddenly there you are months later, years later, right back in that same place again. And then I would imagine part of that that cycle has got to be the inability to, to break the cycle because of, of being crippled emotionally by those feelings of guilt and shame and all of the unanswered questions. We hear stories, for example, of, of women who are post-abortive, who perhaps younger in life, 
had an abortion because the family wouldn't accept the baby. It wasn't the right time. It wouldn't interfere with career, with school, whatever. Then later on in life, meets the right guy, ready to settle down and have a family, and suddenly is infertile. And then walking around with the guilt and shame and saying, God, did I, did I put to death the only child that I was destined to have? And the amount of burden that a woman carries, something like that has got to be overwhelming. Well, we believe lies. And so that's part of the addictions and the patterns is we believe a lie and then we just keep repeating it. You know, for me, it was like, I don't love you. I don't love your baby. So I'm unloved. I'm not enough. And for a young lady that I sat across from the table eating pizza the other day, she had aborted on Wednesday and I met with her on Friday. And every kid that walked by, we were sitting outside, she would say, I want babies so much in the future. And she said, I, I just know that God is going to punish me and not let me have a family. Wow. She's already believing Setting the lie. Setting herself up for it, yeah. And so I'm untangling a lie right there because she said from Wednesday when she aborted to Friday meeting me, that's all she could think about. She said it three times as three different families with little children walked by. And I said, honey, the character of God, he does not punish us. We have consequences for things we've gone through, but right now what you're doing is you're thinking that God's a mean God, and he's not. He's a loving father, and he's there with us in our greatest pain and when we make poor decisions. And I said, I'm going to believe with you that someday that you're going to fall in love and get married, and you're going to be able to have children. Is that the core message central to the book, Laurie, and I ask that question because so many women are are crippled in a sense, relationally, because of the guilt and shame of past choices. Now, let's be careful to say that sometimes women don't even have a choice. Yes. There may be parents, there may be a boyfriend, even sometimes a husband who insists and pressures, and so whether it's familiar pressures, husband, boyfriend pressures, societal pressures to feel as if I cannot possibly carry this child to term, or I cannot possibly do right by this child, and so I need to do this. I have no choice but to do this. And I've always thought it's interesting how the the abortion industry so much focuses on the word choice, and I'm glad that you use choose in the book title because it helps to sort of take that territory back, so to speak, because so often as they celebrate choice, what we really find out is that a lot of women feel as if they have no choice. Absolutely. And they only offer one choice. So that's pretty interesting that they have coined the term choice. Um, that's what happens there at the abortion clinics. And women go in, and they are feeling coerced. Like the Elliott Institute says about 60% of women who have abortions felt coerced. Um, by It used to be more by the boyfriend or the husband. But now, sadly, um, what I'm seeing more and more is mothers are taking their daughters in to have an abortion, saying you're going to ruin your future. Um, I did my own little study in the last month, and some of the people that I know that have had an abortion know very well and have been through um, 
you know, some abortion healing. Um, at our church, we have a movement of love where men and women can be heard and healed from abortion. And I started asking some of the young girls that have told me that they aborted. Um, they would say, their mom would say something like, well, at least it wasn't as bad as when I had to do it. You know, like medicine has come so far. And so I started looking, and there was only one person I knew whose mother had taken her to the abortion clinic that had not had an abortion to my knowledge. Recently, um, very close to the deathbed, the older woman told her daughter that she too had had an abortion. Mm. So the people that I talked to, every single one of the young girls that told me that their mother took them to the abortion clinic are post-abortive too. And so sometimes we just, those patterns repeat. This is the choice I made. This is what you're going to do. And even if they're grieving or they, you know, are drinking alcohol and they're numbing their pain and things, they still offer it to their children. And I'm so grateful that my mother and father loved life, believed that we're all made in God's image, that we're special, that every baby is a blessing. I'm so thankful to that. I can't tell you, like, down to my bones, I know it's because of my parents that I'm so pro-life. And it's important to talk to our kids. We can't just leave them away, especially right now. We can't leave them out there just floundering. We need to be able to talk to our kids, and it's a scary topic. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, even in church, they don't want to talk about it. Well, I think also it's a scary topic because so many people have had their lives impacted. You know, as you shared the case of a woman on her deathbed confessing that she, too, had been down this road. And you've got to imagine, and this is important, I think, for pastors listening and those involved in ministry, when we talk about since 1973, and I don't know what the exact number is today, but it's it's north of 60 million. We're talking almost two times the size of the population of California, to put that in perspective. 60 plus million children have been aborted in America since the historic Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court in January of 19. 19- 73. Rough numbers, if it's 60 million abortions, what are we talking, 120 million that have had, I'm talking mothers and fathers here, that have been touched by this? Certainly some of those are repeats. But if you do just the the rough math here, you're talking about roughly one-third of the entire United States population has had their life touched by abortion, either because they've had one or they've been a father who's had a child that's been aborted, or they're a mother who never saw the grandchild, or a father that never saw the grandson. There's aunts and uncles and all of that out there uh, in the extended family that have been impacted in one way or another. And, And sadly, because we're not willing to use the right words, um such as the way the word choice has been distorted by the abortion industry, that the cycle continues. It does. It does, and it's sad. Um, One thing that may help pastors, if you're listening, is, uh, especially in California, pastors haven't wanted to touch it because it's, it's termed a political topic now. But it's not. It's a gospel topic. And what I mean by that is, if it's a political term, then it means that life begins at uh, fertilization or conception. But the Bible shows us in Genesis that life begins far You say to Daniel, I, while you were yet in the womb, I knew you. Exactly. And so it's really easy for pastors just to bring that back. 
And our faith, our Christian faith, starts with an unplanned pregnancy. As far as Mary and Joseph were not mm-hmm. expecting it. This is very true. Planned by God, but from a human perspective, our whole faith is hinged on that baby coming into the world, Jesus. Well, and I would suspect a lot of pastors that avoid this topic, and they do it, you know, the argument being it's political, need to be reminded we're not talking about aborting a Republican or a Democrat. We're talking about a baby here. And I would suspect that a good percentage of them have had their lives touched by this very topic, and the very kind of guilt and shame that they are experiencing prevents them from being able to go public, meaning to t- discuss this topic from the pulpit. And that's, I'm so glad you said that because I've had experiences with a few churches where they started in house with the pastors and the staff, and it's been really beautiful to see that once that healing bomb of Jesus is applied, to the pastor's own hearts, then they're able to look at this differently, and they're able to shepherd their flock. Well, and they have to, I think, also reconcile that they are, hopefully, preaching a gospel of a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to suffer on our behalf, and that I have never seen in any version of the Bible. Now, I'm a King James fan, but there's all kinds of translations out there. I have never seen a translation come across my desk in 30-plus years as a believer that says, everyone shall be saved except, or that Christ came to shed his blood for the remission of sin, except in the case of, no, there are no exceptions. And so for pastors to allow that exception to stand in the way of their own healing also means that they are depriving the very people that they are shepherding from the opportunity to embrace that, that holistic marriage uh, message that the totality of Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for the woman that made a bad choice, for the man that pressured her into it. Um, and I think that's important that message be be proclaimed uh, unashamedly. Yeah. I think this Choose Zoe is really going to help the pastors to understand um, and to be able to offer even a sanctity of life uh, preaching um, and be able to not say go out and just have premarital sex, but to say if something like this happens, you can come to us. We're going to talk to you. Because to me, a single mom is present culture orphan and widow. They're, they're people that need to be uh, taken care of in the church. When I moved to California, I had my little girl, she was two years old, and I went to a church for about eight months. I was still Catholic, and, and no one was really talking to me in the church, and I called my mom, and I said, you know, there's another church. Is it okay if I go? Because they have daycare, and my daughter was a little feisty, and um, no one had talked to me. So my experience moving away from home for the first time, being in church that many months, and no one even talked to me. And you would think if you would see some young girl back in the late 70s with with a kid, you'd wonder how she got there, who she is, where's her family, where's the man. Um, and so I feel for the, for the, the young moms, and churches need to let the young ladies know that if they get pregnant, they can come and they can receive discipleship. Um, they can have someone mentor them, come alongside of them, because otherwise you're just adding to the fuel where the girl's going to just go and abort and hide the, hide the situation. 
I want to spring forward here for a bit before we run out of time. (laughs) Um, So your daughter, Erica, was born in 1977. Yes. And sometime later, when she became a young lady, she came to you with some news. What was that? Well, she didn't really come to me with the news. Um, It wasn't until actually in the process of writing the book a few years ago that my daughter told me that she, too, had been pregnant in high school. And so she had a secret abortion like you can have in California. You were never aware of that. Wow. I almost stopped writing the book. Um, I wanted this book to be about life and not abortion. But Jesus came to give us all life abundantly, and that means for the woman that's had an abortion too. She, she deserves to have that vitality back in her life that exuberance, you know, that comes from Christ. And so my daughter, um, she went to the healing class, and she said, Mom, I'm, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm ready to talk about it. I want to see other people healed. She's um, part of um, Celebrate Recovery mm. at the church. She helps a lot of people anyway. And she was noticing that some of the times the addictions, that it had, you know, abuse in the background, it had abortion in the background, and so it's, it's, it's a root issue to addictions. And when she started realizing that, she said, use me, Mama. So my kids are um, all about redemption and being healed. They believe in Christ. They believe he has the power to give us a new future, make us a new man or woman. And so all of the kids in the book, they had decisions to be in there or not. And even my son-in-law, when I was looking for someone who had placed a baby for adoption to be in my adoption, he said, I'm a foster to adopt. Why don't you use me from the perspective of me? And so my kids, I'll tell you this, I might have had some messed up relationships and just really lost, you know, finding love in all the wrong places. But there's that scripture, too, that says, like, you've forgiven much, you love much. And I'll tell you one thing, my kids love me. I used to think like there's no way that my kids could ever love me more than I love them. You ask a parent, they'll say, that child can never love me as much as I love them. But I'm starting to wonder because that's how much my kids love me. Or or on the opposite end of that continuum, that no one could ever fully love me if they knew the choices that I've made, the things that I've done, or that God can never fully love me because of the things that I've done. The central message in Chuzoi is that we serve a God of not only new beginnings, but second chances. Yeah. And absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm curious about the title. And you talk about this early on. And, and, and I've, of course, I've mentioned your daughter, uh, Erica's name here. But how did you come? What's the significance of Choose Zoe? Well, I had, um, when those girls, the three 12-year-olds, were pregnant, um, I went home that last, um, with the last one, and I just cried out to God. And about 3.30 in the morning, I, I woke up with a real nudging to write, and I heard, educate my people, equip them. And the first thing that I turned to was John 10.10. And I like looking at the Greek. And so as I began to write, I just felt like God highlighted the exact scripture because in our pregnancies and 
in being made in God's image and able to procreate and, you know, with marriage and, you know, sexuality and, and all of those intimate type details, John 10.10 10 in the beginning says the thief comes to steal, kill, kill and, and destroy. destroy. And when you look at those Greek words, like he's like a pickpocket, like he takes from you, takes from you, and what he can't take from you, he convinces you to give up. Well, and 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 e- even deeper than that, the perspective of, of as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. I mean, boy, those are stern words that certainly steps up, I think, the understanding of just just how intent the enemy of our soul is to try and utterly, completely separate us from God and thereby destroy us. Yeah, just totally ruin our lives. And so then I looked at the second part of John 10.10, maybe it's B, um, where Jesus came to give us life more abundantly. And I looked at that word life. I'm like, that's it. It's if we permeate that through all of our pregnancies, through all of our relationships, through all of our fallen man and woman kind and the situations we get in ourselves into and, you know, bad relationships and divorce and, and on and on, he gave me this as an answer. So I cannot take any credit for that title because that Zoe is the life that Jesus came to give us, not apart from suffering. But in the same way that we suffer with Christ, we also get to share in his resurrection power. And when I started seeing, I've seen lots of situations in pregnancy. And to see that God gave me an answer like this, to be able to put all of these topics in and talk about this. And now, like, my first 10 reviews on Amazon, two of them are from atheists. Pro-choice, I've had an abortion, I love the book. I'm, I'm buying three for people who have had the same kind of traumas. I want this in every uh, high school library. I mean, five-star reviews from people who have been through this. So this book is inspired by God, meant to touch him. I'm not smart enough to do something like this. So I just ask that people give it a chance because there's definitely a lot of spirit-filled things in there. And there's a message here, and we talked about this before we came on the air today. There is a message here that touches every aspect of this, whether it is the post-abortive woman that is dealing with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and has never connected A with B and has lived a whole life with broken relationships and disappointment and, and disconnect from God, and you've never been able to quite put your finger on where and why, to the woman who walks around with a tremendous burden of guilt and shame because of having made the wrong choice to the father, the husband, who forced a woman into it. Uh, There are so many multiple layers here that really at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit wants to pull back so that the light of the truth of his love and his redemptive power can shine through and recognize that, yeah, uh, in, in, in the arena of free will, we sometimes make wrong choices. Choices have consequences. But at the end of the day, while he may not deliver us from the consequences, per se, of our choices, he does deliver us through his son from the condemnation. Mm, and maybe yes. that's the core message here, that so many that walk around with a burden of, of not just guilt and shame, but, but self-condensation and, 
and and the sense that as I condemn myself, God must condemn me too, and therefore I'm cut off from any kind of relationship with Him. When instead, what you're what you're proclaiming by this book is just to the contrary of that. Yes, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen. And once we find that courage within ourselves, then we can go and we can give it to other people. That's the Zoe message. It's not you're, for us. You're for very everyone. involved in the Alpha Pregnancy Clinics. Just give a quick shout out, would you? Oh yeah. <laughs> Alpha Pregnancy Clinics, um, just fabulous people, salt of the earth, loving, kind people that um, most of them volunteer and give of their time to help not only the unborn babies, but their mothers. You know, when they're coming into the center, we're not seeing the baby yet. We're seeing the mom. We're helping her with her fears or how to tell her mom or, you know, just getting to the right medical appointments. And also helping the young guy. He can come in and he can learn about parenting or relationships. And so it's a place where we can definitely help people in their situations of pregnancy, like really help them. And of course, in addition to helping women and families that are coming in with an unplanned pregnancy, then for those on the backside of choices, the wrong choices, um, dealing with the post-traumatic aspect of having gone through an abortion. Their uh, PACE program would I imagine available there too. And again, you can get information, uh, just Google Alpha Pregnancy Clinics. The book is called Choose Zoe, a story of unplanned parenthood and the case for life. It is newly published by Red Arrow Media. You can get it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com. You can also get the book and more information about Laurie at Choose Zoe, Z-O-E, ChooseZoe.com. And you're open to speaking engagements. Folks want to have you come and share at a church or something? I would love it. I want to see people healed and whole. It is, and and I, I want to underscore what she said. This is not a book about abortion. This is a book about life, and decidedly so. Um, with a preamble written by Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, the book called Choose Zoe, a story of unplanned parenthood and the case for life. Our thanks to Lori Lynn Hughes for being with us today in studio. 602, we're a bit late. Let's get caught up quickly here. Get a look at traffic first ahead of some headline news and the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.